Hello and welcome to EMS in the Motor City. On this Demcast, you'll hear from amazing EMS physicians and some of the best EMS providers from in and around the city that moves the world. So grab a seat, buckle in, and away we go. Good morning. We're back in Demcast Studios here at Demcast headquarters. We're going to be spending some time talking about cardiac arrest care and why maybe just about everything you've learned so far is wrong. This morning in studio with me, I have Dr. Stephanie Wise. She's the EMS Medical Director at Detroit Receiving Hospital and Region 2 South Medical Director. Morning, Steph. Good morning. Also, we have the Mr. Damon Gorlick, our EMS extraordinaire and DEMCA executive. Hi, Damon. Good morning. Ryan Reese joins us this morning for the first time. He is our EMS fellow. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. And as always, I'm joined by our medical director, Dr. Rob Dunn. Hi, Rob. Howdy. Nice to be here. I want to mention that this is going to be the first of two parts, at least, maybe more, depending on the timing, where we are talking about different aspects of cardiac arrest. Today, we're going to talk about the most essential components, the BLS components, if you will. And next time, we're going to get into the ALS components and some kind of special cases and updates. So we're going to kick off our recording session this morning with a case. Dr. Wise and Damon are going to chat about one of our cardiac arrest cases. Steph, go ahead. So I'm going to start a little bit back in history. This is actually when I was a fellow. A 55-year-old gentleman is running in a 5K in the cold morning, late December. And just as he is about to cross the finish line, he collapses to the ground. He actually does so in front of a couple of off-duty EMS providers who recognize immediately what's happening and jump in to provide immediate chest compressions. The ambulance responding was actually close to the finish line because they were there to cover the event and very quickly came with an AED and they were able to provide ACLS care. They intubated the patient and then he went into a shockable rhythm and after one shock, they loaded him into the ambulance. By the time I arrived to the patient's side in the back of the ambulance, he was awake and trying to pull out his own ET tube. We decided since he was fully alert at this time, we actually pulled the ET tube, gave him a couple of minutes to orient as we're on the way to the hospital, and I asked him what happened. And his response was, I was about to finish. (laughs) So there's a lot of things that really went well with that with a case like that you know that i think show a lot of the important elements of what it takes to survive a cardiac arrest so you know we're gonna talk about a bunch of those things today but what what are the kind of things that uh, you know what needs to be in place for someone really to survive a cardiac arrest it certainly starts with the early recognition and also to early, yeah, early recognition, early CPR, and very early defibrillation. The sooner you can get someone, you know, pads on a patient, either AED or monitor, and defibrillate, the chances of them surviving the event greatly increase. So how does that how does that happen for most people? Right, we we've been out there trying to teach people 
how to do better CPR, right? That's one thing we've been doing. There's the whole recognition by people in the community that someone's actually having a cardiac arrest, right? I mean, that's yep. important. We are going on the community and teaching hands only CPR and trying to teach people, make it very simple for them. You know, we've taken away pulse checks, just make sure they're breathing, get your hands in the chest, and really giving people the knowledge that doing compressions is buying you time until we can get a defibrillator on the patient. Again, either an AED or a monitor. Yeah, and that's so important. And then, you know, there've been some changes at a lot of 911 centers that where the 911 operators are coaching CPR. We've worked on that a lot here in Detroit, but that's happening kind of across the country to encourage people to do CPR when it's recognized that someone's in cardiac arrest. Now, those are things that we as, you know, we're talking to our EMS providers today, but everybody needs to know that's that's going on. What was another great step in that case, Stephanie? Another great step was high quality CPR. You had trained responders in this case who were able to step in and provide the high quality CPR until the electricity was available. And they were able to get the care that they needed very rapidly. Which is perfect, right? We want high quality, high fidelity CPR from our EMS team. If you're the first responder on scene while somebody is running to grab the AED, we know that early defibrillation along with high quality CPR is absolutely the best chance of good outcome for any of our cardiac arrest patients. So yeah, absolutely. A couple of great things in that case, we had high, highly trained providers right near the finish line and quick access to an AED. We've seen a lot of strides in this area about public access defibrillation, places like the airports and the casinos that have them available have some of the best outcomes for cardiac arrest survivors, which means that the AED is truly life-saving and something that should always be at the EMS provider's side when we're running into any scene. And it's really, you know, a lot of this, when you're talking about, you know, public access defibrillators and things like that, that is something that's all happening before our first EMS provider gets there, even if we've got initial like medical first responders or uh, emergency medical responders coming on, you know, fire trucks or with the police or, or any any given way of getting people there, that's happening before we get EMS there. And that makes so much of the difference, right? I mean, if this person, if your person hadn't gotten some CPR by the people that saw him go down, right, the chance of survival goes way down, right? Exactly. We estimate chance of survival goes down 10% for every minute that they aren't getting chest compressions. And we know that chest compressions make it more likely a patient is going to have a shockable rhythm when responders are able to get access to a defibrillation or a monitor. Yeah. And that, that number, you know, if you think that the best survival for someone who has a shockable rhythm who collapses in front of someone is probably in a, a 50 to 60% range from, from actual witness things that they've seen in electrophysiology labs and operating rooms and things like that. Then, you know, that 10 going down that 10% really, you know, often by the time a responder gets there, if there's no, if there's been no bystander CPR, what you're really dealing with is a patient that is potentially never going to survive. 
Exactly. That's why we want to reach out to the community to be the first step in the chain of survival. Yeah. So again, today we're talking to our, our EMS providers. So what kind of things do we want to talk about with our EMS providers? I think one of the most important things is to minimize the amount of interruptions you do when you are doing CPR to truly maximize the time you do have the hands in the chest. I know there are some areas in the country that actually have it in the protocol. They only give you three pauses, three, teen, three 10 second pauses to do throughout the whole cardiac arrest run. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the spirit of, you know, kind of telling you what we're going to tell you, talking about it and, and tell you again, right? So what are the things that we really, what's our key messages today, our bullet points? Like Damon covered one of them. So really good quality CPR, right? We want to stay focused on CPR quality, minimizing pauses, getting appropriate defibrillation to that patient early on. And there's a lot of different steps in that. And, and just to mention, the people in this room have been working on some projects for years. We've actually looked at every out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Detroit since about 2004. So we have a lot of data about our own cardiac arrests, what happens to people, and what actually works. The case that Dr. Wise presented at the start of the podcast is about as pretty as it gets for cardiac arrest care with EMS essentially on scene already. But most of the time, that's not how it works. Uh, many of you probably know I was an EMS provider before becoming a physician, an EMS physician. So I've been on my fair share of cardiac arrest. I've taken those calls. Let's talk about what we would want to see as maybe like the perfect cardiac arrest from what we see most often from dispatch to arrival in the hospital. If all of us EMS physicians were a fly on the wall watching a cardiac arrest from EMS, here's the way we want it to go. So let's think about a call. You're dispatched to a cardiac arrest, a 60 year old female. Dispatch is coaching family or first first people on scene to be doing CPR. And you know that you're gonna be on the way so what are the things that we want to think about the things that you want to have at the top of your brain on the way to the call when you're thinking about working a cardiac arrest of this the 60 year old female or somebody who's kind of just like her damon you're a provider as well when you're on the way to the call what's going through your head really what you want to do is make sure you have the assigned roles established uh, really decide who's going to get on the chest first doing CPR and who is going to hook up the pads as you're doing CPR. Make sure you have a plan in place where you're not kind of having a, a couple second pauses when you get on scene, looking at each other, deciding who should be doing what then. Have that plan already mapped out so that way it's just a seamless transition once you get on scene. Absolutely. Damon makes a great point that one of the key components of high fidelity and high quality CPR is establishing roles. So you want to make sure you know who your leader is, your team leader, who's going to kind of direct the entire resuscitation. You want to establish who's going to control the airway, who's going to do chest compressions immediately, and any other additional helpers that are kind of going to backfill that role for CPR. So we've talked about, you know, you really want to make sure your roles are assigned. You probably want to have in mind maybe some causes of cardiac arrest, anything you might potentially be able to reverse easily from an EMS standpoint. Dr. Wise, what should the EMS providers be thinking about as far as maybe being able to reverse a cardiac arrest? 
So there are some circumstances that providers may not know about, you might not be able to answer, but common things that people want to look for, you know, was there potentially an airway obstruction that you can intervene on? Another common one that we see is a dialysis patient who may have electrolyte derangements and you need to think about hyperkalemia. If their potassium level is too high, you can actually address that during your ALS response. I think those are a couple of common ones. Yep, absolutely. I agree 100%. But those would be things to look out for and to be thinking about on the way to the call. So now we've thought about what we're going to do, who's going to take each role, and we've actually hit the scene. Ryan, what do we bring in to every single cardiac arrest and actually any call that might sound like the patient is sick, potentially going into cardiac arrest, or just sick in general? So we're talking about like the difficulty breathing patients, the chest pain patients. What should EMS be bringing in for these calls? Or the sick unknowns even in there. Yeah, absolutely. Some Those... of these people are going to turn into arrests because we just don't know that much about what's going on. Or right. even those unknown like alarms, the the alarms from the nursing home or from the senior assisted living facility that's just a total unknown. What are we bringing in? Yeah, you're bringing in your gear. I mean, you, you need to be able to identify and treat lethal arrhythmia. So either your AED or your defibrillator, uh, airway equipment, medications. And I would say bring your stretcher too. Nobody wants to be running all the way back to the ambulance from like way on the top floor of a building to be able to get a cardiac arrest patient out. We want to make that seamless to the hospital as soon as we get ROSC. So absolutely all the gear on all of the sick cases all of the time. So now that we've gotten all of the gear to the patient's side and we get there and we see family or friends doing CPR, we need to know how to transition from bystander CPR to professional rescuer CPR. So Damon, you want to walk us through maybe how that transition might look from the EMS side? Again, you should already have the plan in place of who's going to get on the chest. And the first thing is, a lot of the times as you walk in, what you see is people stop, the bystanders stop. So, you know, be ready to tell them to keep going until you're actually getting that handoff. And that's an awesome point. When people do see EMS personnel, they will tend to stop because they think we are automatically going to take over. So you are going to have to do a little bit of coaching, let people know to continue what they're doing. especially Or just the fact that you walked in, a miracle is going to happen. Exactly. But you may want to, especially if they're doing good CPR, you may want to let them continue a little bit where you do have a little bit more time to get the pads on and to address any other issues around there and, and take a pause. Uh, the other thing you do need to take in consideration is scene management quick and early when you're on there. Try and, especially if you do have other first responders there, try and start assigning tasks as soon as you start seeing people. Even if it's just some simple as telling someone to go get information from the family or help get family maybe put not push back but help comfort family and get family a little bit more out of the way for you right maybe even assign someone to get some information from them so yes. you know that's just where you find out some of that history points that, that stephanie was talking about uh that can be so valuable and get you know have someone what happened and and also you know to help them uh, address the fact that their family member is laying there on the floor getting CPR. 
Yes. And one of the things that I have seen is when you come on scene, there are other medical professionals, MFRs, who have you, they all want to be a part of the process. So if you don't assign them a role, they will make one up for themselves, which may be more disruptive. So again, it is as soon as you get on there, you have your role set up with your partner, get on the chest and start taking over the whole scene and start assigning tasks and also taking the, the family into consideration of what's going on. Absolutely. I would maybe make one point here is that whoever is going to be assigned as the team leader really should not be the one who's actively doing chest compressions. Your team leader should be the one who's able to step back, surveil the whole scene, and make sure that everything is moving fluidly. And if you're in the middle of a procedure, so that's doing chest compressions, defibrillating, or managing an airway, it's it's hard to continue to step back and be the leader. So if you can use an MFR, a first responder, man, if you're really strapped for people, even a family member who's been doing great CPR, utilize them so that you can continue to be the leader and run the code. So now we're doing CPR, we've gotten family involved, we've got somebody talking to family, maybe setting some expectations of, hey, what this potentially looks like down the road, right? This patient is critically ill. They're going to be in the hospital. You need to gather your family members, setting some expectations so that family understands the gravity of the situation. It's helpful on the ER side if families already have some indication from the EMS providers that the patient on the floor receiving CPR is critically ill. While that may be absolutely completely obvious to anybody in the medical field, it's not that way to the general public. So after CPR, we need electricity. If we've done good CPR, a shockable rhythm and good electricity is life-saving. So what do we need to do next? Ryan? Yeah, so while family or the uh, designated initial uh, person doing uh, chest compressions, while chest compressions are underway, you need to get um, uh, start thinking about pad placement. And so we're going to get uh, AP, AP pads placed. Absolutely. AP is a great direction. We'll talk a little bit more about pad placement in a minute. But I think for the initial set, pad placement in a way that minimizes CPR interruption is the way to go. So we've got CPR in place, we've got electricity, we're managing family, and let's say we defibrillate and get ROSC. So now we need to be able to move toward the hospital because our protocol indicates that anytime we've defibrillated and obtained ROSC, we're going to the hospital, and anytime we defibrillate at all in the field means transport to the hospital. Dr. Dunn, what do we need to do and keep in mind when we're on the way to the hospital or those really tenuous movements of the patient? Well, the first thing is is to pause yeah. then and look at your look at what's going on. Make sure you're optimally doing post-ROS care. Again, we're going to break these down with a little bit more detail about what needs to happen. Um, but, you know, if you're if you're an advanced life support unit, um, you know, making sure you've got uh a good waveform capnography on whatever you're using for your airway, bag valve masks, extraglottic airway, another form of airway management so you can really see what's going on. You want to get, uh, you'd love to give the patient some fluid if you're advanced life support. You want to make sure that you have that whole team approach about ready to move that patient. And just to step back a little bit about the defibrillation, because I think sometimes when I see people doing cardiac arrests, 
uh, there's a little too much like, let's check the patient right after being defibrillated. Even if I successfully defibrillate you, you are not circulating blood for a while. Don't worry about checking that rhythm immediately after defibrillation. Defibrillate, do your, do your CPR, and then when you're ready for your next check, that's when you're really looking for success, right? Or you're ending up with no circulation for a while. You're sitting there and those CPR pauses are the most important thing to avoid when you're doing CPR. So you wanna make sure that you've got that patient kind of ready, that you're stable, you've got your team, and then you've got a plan for moving that patient safely because you're gonna expect that a number of these patients are gonna re-arrest, right? So you wanna immediately become aware of that person re-arresting. You wanna go ahead and you wanna get a set of vitals, you wanna run a 12 lead EKG if you have that capability. Most of our BLS units in Demca can do 12 lead EKGs. Uh, as of course all of our ALS units can and get that transmitted to the hospital. And then you wanna have that communication with the hospital about what's going on and what you know what happened with the patient. And this is where I wanna mention a, a term that gets used wrong um, just about every day uh, by physicians, paramedics, and that term is downtime. You hear this term downtime. Downtime means that the interval that the patient was not getting any resuscitative efforts. It has, it's not about the time they were getting CPR, right? So when you're talking about downtime in something that's a witnessed arrest that had immediate bystander CPR, it was you know 15 seconds, 20 seconds of down of downtime. And you want to use this term correctly because people that understand what it means, uh, you know, like some of our more sophisticated cardiologists, if you say, oh, there's 20 seconds of downtime then, or excuse me, 20 minutes of downtime, but really it was 20 minutes of CPR time, they're gonna say, well, no one survives with 20 minutes without CPR. So downtime is your interval without CPR. And make sure you're communicating that right to the hospital and any other factors from the scene that you think are important so that the hospital can be aware. And they need that. And tell them you sent that EKG to remind them to take a look at it because that's really important. And then, you know, and then safely move the patient with some additional help. If the patient re-arrests during transport, our data and the national data would say that you really need to stop, reassess the patient, defibrillate as needed, do your C, do C, start CPR immediately, continue whatever airway management you're, you're doing, and then again, communicate what's going on. Because when we look at even really well done CPR in a moving vehicle, we don't see good circulation. Uh, so keep that in mind. Not to mention CPR in a moving vehicle most likely means the providers are unrestrained, which is terribly dangerous. So we made some, Robbie made some great points about being ready for a patient to re-arrest. We see this all the time in the hospital as well and about uh, what we want to know on the hospital side. So staff, you take a lot of these radio calls over at receiving. What are the key factors that you want to see or want to hear from EMS when you know they're coming in with a patient who's been in cardiac arrest? I want to know essentially anything that they know. It's important, as Dr. Dunn pointed out, to know the actual downtime, time before CPR, know who was responding and know what treatments were provided. If there are other seen factors, whether it was potentially an overdose and not a cardiac etiology, 
versus somebody who was witness to clutch their chest and then go unresponsive and start sorting out some of the causes of this arrest. That's all important information to convey to the hospital. Let us know what your 12 lead ECG or the monitor is showing. Let us know where the vital signs are right now. Particularly your waveform capnography. Again, many of our basic life support units and all of our ALS units have waveform capnography and those numbers can be really important to the hospital and you know pull that waveform to show them when you get there because it'll tell them a lot about what was happening during the arrest absolutely and i think going back to another point you probably noticed that we are talking about scene management in all of this and in the vast majority of cardiac arrest cases the scene doesn't prevent present any further concerns as far as safety the best thing for a patient is to work them on scene where they arrested. If you look at somebody and you think that this is even a patient who is about to arrest because your intuition is tingling a little bit, assess them on scene and don't move them until you have a better idea of what's going on and how you're going to take care of them because it's critical to provide cardiac arrest care as quickly as possible and not delaying that. And I want to just touch on that preventing of prevention of cardiac arrest. We've certainly reviewed a lot of cases at our peer review, which was how we helped to update our protocols. And, you know, there's some new protocols that are coming out to specifically address this issue. But if you find a patient who is hypoxic, who's hypotensive, who has some rapid shallow breathing, a lot of times, you know, the, the instinct from some of our providers who've been out there a long time is, oh, I'm going to get them in the hospital. And I know Damon always likes to joke, there's no such thing as a proximity protocol, right? You're, you're there wherever the patient is. The stress of moving somebody who is particularly hypoxic, that's one of the highest risk things we see that is going to go on and lead to a respiratory and then a cardiac arrest. You know, take some time to fix that. You know, give them some oxygen, get them on CPAP, start a breathing treatment. You know, stabilizing people a little bit of taking that extra pause on the scene to do a good assessment, find out what's going on, and intervene with the most basic of interventions has been shown to prevent cardiac arrests. Absolutely. And, and that includes many of the cases we see in PSRO. The bad outcome is because we, we didn't have a good set of vitals or a good assessment initially. So how are you going to know if the patient is hypoxic if we don't put the pulse ox on? Or how do we know if the patient is hypotensive if we hadn't taken the blood pressure? So in these ROSC patients or patients who just appear to be critically ill, and you guys all know what that looks like, take the time on scene, put the pulse ox on, understand if they're hypoxic. If they are, fix it. We have oxygen in all forms. If they're hypotensive, at least we know if you're ALS, you could consider giving some fluids. And then take some time to understand how you're going to move a patient. Never, ever walk a critically ill patient to the stretcher. I can't tell you how many cases from PSRO we've seen where a patient decompensates when crews have attempted to walk the patient to the stretcher. Just, just don't do it. And put the... Put your pads on the patient before you move them. Even as a BLS unit, you just have a defibrillator, put the pads on. Patients who look unstable 
are actually very much, excuse me, are much more likely to turn into a cardiac arrest. And the quicker you could defibrillate that patient, the better off they'll be, right? So if you go, if you're moving them, even if you're following all of these great recommendations, but they suddenly become unresponsive, and then you've got to, you know, un unwrap the pads and stick them on the patient and do all that, you're missing an opportunity for someone who might be in a very easily shockable rhythm. So, you know, the, remember those shockable rhythms don't last long. They certainly don't last long without CPR, but they don't last long in that initial interval sometimes either. So get those pads on before you move the patient. So we talked about what maybe a perfect cardiac arrest looks like from the EMS side. So let's take a minute to get through and talk some more about the science of cardiac arrest care and the science of CPR and the data behind it and why it's so incredibly important to stay up on the current research. So when, when I started and probably when Rob started, lots of the things we did then just aren't, aren't the same things we do now. Right. I look back at all the things I learned about resuscitation as an emergency medicine resident in the 1990s, and basically everything that we were doing then has been shown now to be harmful. We've learned so much, and we're learning stuff every day. We're actually right now in a kind of golden age of cardiac arrest research. So we're going to try and help you keep up with our podcasts and information on our website and updated protocols. Um, but everybody who is a pre-hospital emergency provider should be trying to keep up with what's going on in Ab resuscitation. Absolutely. When I started an EMS in the, in the 2000s, we were stacking shocks and emptying the drug box into, into people. Mm -hmm. And we know now that that does not CPR improve. CPR rates of 80. And right. Does not improve survival. And so it's crazy. let's start on the very most important component of cardiac arrest care and management, which is CPR. Dr. Reese, you want to walk us through the best quality CPR we can provide and, and why we do it the way we do it now? Yeah, so the uh, latest and greatest evidence we have on uh, CPR is that it is the most important uh, activity that a pre-hospital provider uh, can provide to a cardiac arrest patient. Uh, we're making sure that we are achieving a compression rate of 100 to 120 beats per minute. There's various songs out there that uh, folks use to try and keep that tempo, which we will, I, I will avoid singing at this time to, uh, uh, yeah, we're just going to save you that for now. Um, but the, the rate is important. The depth that you compress the patient is important um, of uh, 50 millimeters or about two and a half inches on an adult patient and allowing the chest to recoil uh, between each compression is important. We are trying to uh, increase or we're, we're trying to re restore blood pressure um, and the coronary arteries, the arteries that feed the heart during chest compressions, and it takes about 12 to 15 compressions to get that uh, blood pressure um, started. So delaying or interrupting CPR, you have to start all over again. So delay, or sorry, reducing the amount of uh, com uh, delays be between uh, compressions is vitally important. Right, those interruptions, stopping those interruptions is, is key, and that's one of the things you as a team leader should really be focused on when you're, when you're running those, those codes. And 
you know, letting that chest bounce back, that's yeah. really important. You know, that's something that as you get tired, you often leave your hands on the chest and you're putting some pressure because what happens when that chest bounces back, that's when the heart's filling. That's when the coronary arteries are filling, right? So you, you, it's just as important that recoil of the chest, that decompression as the compression phase. One of the things that is advancing along with our understanding of cardiac arrest is the technology that we have available to us. And as much as we can sometimes get annoyed with all of the noises that our monitors make, when it comes to cardiac arrest, it's actually giving you a lot of information. And several of the models are something to pay attention to. If you hear it beeping during your chest compressions, it's trying to tell you something. It's telling you the rate. If you're not a musician, you may not understand metronomes and how annoying they can be, but it is actually giving you the exact rate to some of our songs, Staying Alive. It's telling you the 100 to 120 beats per minute to help you keep up with an appropriate rate. It can also give a cue for when to give respirations and it'll also keep track of if there might be changes in a rhythm that you need to pay attention to. And of course, always important is monitoring your waveform capnography. Right, and that and uh, advanced life support monitors will monitor depth or give you some information on depth. So the monitor is trying to coach you, um, just like all of us when we're trying to get when people are trying to coach us, sometimes we ignore it. But it's definitely worth paying attention. It's been shown to dramatically improve CPR quality by paying attention to what's on the monitor and they're trying to make that better all the time. Again, new science, new technology. We've spent a lot of our time talking about circulation and chest compressions and especially for anyone who trained a while ago, you've heard ABCs referenced a lot and one of the points we really want to emphasize is it's no longer the ABCs of resuscitation, it's the CABs. We're talking about chest compressions because circulation comes first. That's how you're going to save a patient. After circulation comes airway and breathing. And ironically, one of the things we found in cardiac arrest care is hyperventilation can be more deadly. It's more harmful for our patient. In a lot of out-of-hospital studies, when you look at resuscitation with trained rescuers, they on average will administer 30 breaths per minute anywhere from 15 to 49 breaths. And that reduces the ability for chest compressions to be effective within the chest because we're essentially trying to make a pump to help the heart circulate blood when it's not doing it on its own. A lot of that has to do with pressure. And the more that we're adding too much airway pressure and too much intrathoracic pressure, the more we're reducing the ability for the circulation to happen. But we do need to address airway at some point because we know that this is a patient who is unresponsive with an unprotected airway. So if we consider our airway, we can look at a couple of airway trials. And if you look at protocols for EMS across the country and even in parts of our state, what you'll find is endotracheal intubation is being significantly reduced, especially in cardiac arrest, compared to a supraglottic airway. In our own Demka airway protocol, we essentially say the endotracheal is considered a gold standard, but supraglottic airways are equivalent. And in a cardiac arrest, it's actually being shown more and more that the supraglottic airway is the airway of choice. For one, it helps you maintain your chest compression fraction. 
And we're also noting that it's an adequate airway. It provides the oxygenation that is needed. And then the focus on appropriate ventilations, not ventilating 15 to 45 times a minute, but even as much as six is actually adequate in your cardiac arrest patient. And maybe even doing some smaller breaths, right? You don't have to empty that bag every time that you give that ventilation. And actually, if you watch your end tidal CO2 waveforms, you can see kind of a good breath versus a, a stacked breath, as Dr. Wise is talking about. Exactly. There are a couple of airway trials in the recent literature. One is called the PART, P-A-R-T trial, and one is called the Airways 2 trial. And we'll include the references to these on the DEMCO website. Exactly. Don't just take our word for it. Look up the literature yourself so you can understand it even more. What we found is when we compared the supraglottic airway to an endotracheal tube, the supraglottic goes in much faster with a higher first-pass success rate, 90% for supraglottic compared to 51% for the endotracheal tube. And the survival was significantly different, 18.3% in the supraglottic versus 15% for an endotracheal intubation. Airways 2 trial was also looking at direct laryngoscopy compared to a supraglottic airway. It was an even bigger group. And again, they found that the time to achieve ventilations in two attempts was much reduced in the supraglottic airway compared to the endotracheal tube. Right, and that was a huge trial. That was 9,000 patients, multiple systems. So I think that we have learned a lot, again, as we, you know, we, we used to do things differently, and now we, we've learned a lot. You know, everybody's going to be starting with bag valve mask ventilation, but the next step is using that, that supraglottic or extraglottic airway, which can provide some airway protection, and most of the modern sophisticated supraglottic airways can be, you know, you can put a fiber optic laryngoscope down, you can use them for a number of different things. Most of them have suction ports, so they're perfectly usable in the hospital. Dr. Wise actually wrote a, a memo to all the hospitals about this a few years ago, because some of them were hot about changing these things. This can stay in for hours at the hospital while the patient's getting stabilized, right? It may be that once you've got this airway in and it's working fine, that might be the only thing that's really working on the patient is they go in and out of ventricular fibrillation or have other things going on. So, you know, that's a, a perfectly good way to stabilize that airway. Exactly. So we've been talking for a while now and everything pretty much you've heard us talk about is BLS care. We're gonna drop a little early holiday gift for all of our BLS providers and let you know that pretty much everything in cardiac arrest care, your BLS providers are the best thing that we've got. And uh, so Rob, why is it? Why is it that we put such an emphasis on BLS care? Well, I think that really BLS care sometimes got neglected in all of the discussion and education. But what we really know today from all the research that's out there is it is all those BLS interventions, the great CPR, the, the good job with ventilations, the appropriate and fast defibrillation that is really going to make the difference in whether people live or die. And that we know that there's been a lot of research done, and we'll do another podcast on advanced life support interventions, is that most of the ALS interventions have been shown either to be harmful or not clearly have a benefit to the vast majority of patients while they're in cardiac arrest. Yes, yeah, some benefits after you achieve ROSC, but 
some very specific things that we can all learn. One of the main things is to make sure you do get your hands on the chest, do good quality CPR with as very few interruptions as, as possible. Yep, and ma making sure to keep in mind that the supraglottic airway is equivalent to intubation and has been shown to be uh, as effective, if not more effective, in achieving ROSC and having long-term survival and being mindful of how often you're bagging and not over overventilating the patient. And one of the other very best things we can do in the field for a patient is early defibrillation, getting those pads on and getting electricity delivered gives the patient the best chance of survival. Yeah, and I think when we look at some of our survivors in our own data here in Demka is that we see that a lot of our survivors come in those first two defibrillations or maybe three defibrillations. And, you know, before you get too far down any other pathway, they've had good CPR and they got a defibrillation and that's what saved them. Absolutely. So you guys have heard us talk for, for a while about cardiac arrest care. Clearly, this is something we are incredibly passionate about as EMS physicians. And we believe that our EMS providers in the field are truly resuscitologists. This is the thing that you guys do probably better than anybody else, including many of the physicians in the hospitals you're bringing patients to. We deeply appreciate the work you guys do. And we hope that you'll tune in with us again sometime in the very near future. We can spend a whole lot more time and plan to spend more time talking about ALS care and cardiac arrest, as well as some new and emerging technologies and innovation pushing the care for cardiac arrest patients into the future. Yeah, and definitely stay tuned for more Demcasts. And we will also put a bunch of the stuff that we talked about today on our website. That's Demka.org. Thanks again for listening to our Demcast EMS in the Motor City. We appreciate all of you. Yeah.